Hey there, my name is Madison and I'm one of the pastors at Kainos Church in Portland, Oregon. This teaching you're about to listen to is from one of our Kainos collectives. These gatherings happen once a month, typically the first Sunday of the month, and serve as a time for us to worship together and learn from the scriptures. On the following Sundays of each month, we gather in smaller groups inside homes. We call these Kainos communities. Here we share a meal and discuss the Bible together. For more information about Kainos, feel free to visit kainospdx.org. The hope of Kainos Church is that we are people finding fresh and fulfilled life in Jesus. Good morning, y'all. It is so good to be with you, and happy second birthday to Kainos, to this community. Yeah, I'm pumped for cake. Thank you, Cynthia. You're the best. Uh, you know, I there are certain passages that we go through together that feel uh, challenging to me. There are others that I have loved for a really long time. But this is a passage that uh, I have not really ever heard like taught on before. It was not something I had studied very much before in the last couple of months, last year or so. But as I've gotten into it, it has been so, so beautiful to me. And I'm really excited to get into the scriptures with you this morning. Uh, before we do that, I'd love to just take a moment to pray. Um, and We've uh, spent some time this summer talking about prayer, different ways to pray, and one of the ways that we uh, talked about praying was uh, like posturing our bodies in a way that will allow us to receive from God and talk to God. So I invite you, if you're comfortable, just to sit comfortably in your chair, maybe hold your hands open if you would like, and, and receive this prayer with me. God, we give you thanks for community. For two years, God, of getting to share life together, to celebrate together, to grieve together. And God, we just take time to acknowledge that each of us come into this place this morning from different weeks. There are things weighing on us. There are heaviness that we feel. There is joy that we feel. Things that play in the back of our mind. And God, we ask, as we just sang that song, Peace Be Still, would you allow us to be still for a few moments together? to engage in a discussion around the scriptures, Jesus, to learn more about you and to learn more about ourselves. So would you give us peace? God, would you give us an open mind and heart to learn together this morning? And Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as I was preparing for this teaching, a thought popped into my head. I love movies, and the thought I was chewing on was this. What is the best sequel film ever made? I don't know if anybody has an opinion. Empire Strikes Back. You beat me to the punch, man. That was what I was going to say. Yeah, Toy Story 2, Rocky 2, The Two Towers. But for me, The Dark Knight and The Empire Strikes Back, they're above all the rest. Okay? Sequels like these two take an already compelling story and they push it even further. They go more in depth and focus on developing the plot, the characters, and expanding the story's universe. And sequels are usually done well when they have the same director as the first story, or a creative visionary that kind of ties the pieces together. And the book of Acts, in many, in many ways, was created as a sort of sequel. It's a follow-up to the gospel stories about the life of Jesus. The book's historical name was the Acts of the Apostles, because it focuses on how God worked through Jesus' disciples after his death, resurrection, and ascension. Acts shows us how the church grew, the challenges they faced, the beauty they encountered, all the while posing questions to modern readers about how the story applies to us today. 
And Acts was written by a man named Luke, who was also the author of the third gospel account. And just like his narrative of Jesus's life, he addresses the book of Theophilus in verse one to a recipient whose name is Theophilus. But who is Theophilus? Well, short answer is we don't know. <laughs> but we do have some educated guesses. Uh, Theophilus is a combination of two Greek words, Theo, which means God, and philos, which is like a hyphenated word, which means a friend of or someone who loves. So the word Theophilus might mean someone who is a friend of God or someone who loves God. So this could mean that Luke was writing to a powerful, influential Greek person named Theophilus. And the Gospel of Luke, he addresses him as most excellent Theophilus. So maybe he was wealthy and he asked Luke to investigate the story of Jesus and his church and then report back. Perhaps another theory is that Theophilus could have actually been a group of people, perhaps the upstart church of Greeks and Gentiles in the ancient world who were seeking to become friends of God but had not grown up in the Jewish tradition. And finally, Theophilus could simply be addressed to anyone, anyone who seeks to in any time or any place be a friend of God. And after addressing this to Theophilus, Luke dives straight back into the story. So we will read again uh, Luke, or pardon me, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, after dying, Jesus rose again. This is what we celebrate on Easter. And for the next 40 days, he spent time with his friends, teaching them about the main theme of his parables, his sermons, and his entire life, the kingdom of God. Now, in those days, a kingdom meant many things at the same time. A kingdom was a specific place set by boundaries and typically expanded by war or conquest. A kingdom was also a nation, the way we might think about a country today, sort of, that typically had a unified culture and history. A kingdom was a people, a people who shared a language, shared customs, and a mutual identity. And if you were not formerly a part of that people and your land was taken over, well, you were forced to take on those language, those customs, and that identity. And finally, a kingdom was ruled by a powerful king or queen. So when Jesus talked about bringing his kingdom to earth, he meant that his kingdom was a place but a different one than his friends imagined, which we'll talk about a bit this morning. His kingdom would not be furthered by waging war against enemies, but by loving them. And Jesus meant that his kingdom would be a people, a people with a clearly defined culture, but not a culture marked by a specific ethnicity or social class or language, but marked by love, joy, peace, and patience, by kindness, by faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this kingdom also had a ruler, a ruler who stood in stark contrast to Caesar, a ruler whose kingdom was upside down in every way, where instead of taking the lives of enemies and prisoners, this king would lay down his life for his people. And Luke very specifically notes that Jesus did this for a period of 40 days. Now, the Bible often uses numbers and places and seemingly minor details like this very strategically. It may not seem like it at first glance, but these little footnotes are typically included for a very specific purpose. And I would argue that this is one of those times. The number 40 appears many times in the story of the Bible. I don't know if you can think of any off the top of your head, there's Noah's Ark, right? They're waiting for 40 days for dry land. And the desert for 40 years. Yes, Moses is on Mount Sinai talking to Yahweh for 40 days. The people get restless. Elijah goes to a mountain for 40 days. And for 40 days, Jesus went into the wilderness and fasted. Biblical scholar Tim Mackey, 
who went here to Multnomah University. Shout out. Uh, he uh, says that the use of the number 40 in the Bible is commonly associated with a period of expected waiting. Think about it. 40 years of wandering, waiting for the promised land. 40 days on the ark, waiting for dry land. 40 days on uh, Mount Sinai, where the people are waiting. They actually are so tired of waiting that they carve this golden calf wild story, right? It seems that Luke specifically uses 40 days to draw our minds to a period of expectant waiting. But what are they waiting for? Well, Jesus tells us. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells his friends to wait for the promise of receiving God's spirit. Now, this was not a new concept to Jesus' disciples. There were Old Testament prophecies about the arrival of God's spirit. If you go through Isaiah 32, Ezekiel 36, Joel 2, many of the prophets talk about this coming of God's spirit. But the fact that God's spirit would be dwelling with people and in people would become a very new reality for them. And after Jesus gave him this remarkable promise, the disciples respond in verse 6 by asking, Lord... Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, if you're anything like me, you might hear that response and think, what on earth? (laughs) Why would you respond to what Jesus just said with that question? But essentially, what they're saying is, Jesus, now that you have resurrected and you're talking about this kingdom, are you now going to overthrow the Roman Empire and give us our land and our power back? Jesus is talking about a kingdom Right? And they believe that the Messiah would come to restore the kingdom of Israel. So they're trying to like put the pieces together. Okay? Now there's a couple of ways that we can interpret their response. The first might be that his disciples are still just selfish and focused on nothing more than regaining power from Rome. Right? It's likely that they started following Jesus because they hoped he would be a conquering king like David. That would overthrow their oppressors and return their land and power back to them. But notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke them. Right? And Jesus has no problem (laughs) telling his friends when they're in the wrong, right? Notice what Jesus responds. Notice the posture that he responds to them in. You see, the second interpretation of their response is that they're tracking with what Jesus is saying. And they've seen how the Old Testament has been pointing to this moment where God's spirit would come. And they've probably heard all their life from their rabbis that this moment would accompany the restoration of Israel. So Jesus responds with this. It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, that's, that's not what I want you to focus on. Instead, here's what I want you to think about. That you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You, everyday ordinary people, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus asked his friends to be in the ancient Greek language that Acts was written, his Martus, his witnesses. The word witness, by definition, is someone who provides testimonial evidence, either oral or written, of what they have seen, know, or claim to know. In other words, he's asking his friends to share with others what they had seen and come to know, that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was the Messiah, that he lived, he died, he rose again, and has called each of us to follow him. Now, a rabbi asking his followers to go and share what they had seen and learned would not have been uncommon. What would have been strange and probably even shocking to Jesus' disciples was the spaces that he called them to go to. 
Consider for a moment the context of these spaces and what they would have meant to Jesus' disciples. The first place he asked them to go is Jerusalem. Jerusalem was their current location and was a city filled with their fellow people, Jews. But still, it was the place where just 40 days ago, what had happened? An angry mob had killed Jesus, right? So I can imagine that they're thinking about that place as being a little hostile, not only towards Jesus, but also to them, right? Notice how in those 40 days, they're kind of like hanging out at a house, hanging out at a beach. They're not just like out in the middle of town telling everybody what's going on. It kind of seems like they're trying to hide back from society and probably for good reason. The next place Jesus tells his disciples to go to is Judea. And while Judea was also a predominantly Jewish place, Luke tells Theophilus in his gospel that those in Judea were furious when Jesus came to their land and claimed to be Yahweh. And they tried to kill him. The crucifixion is not the first murder attempt at Jesus' life. The Judeans actually tried to kill Jesus first. So, so far, the first two places that Jesus is calling his friends to be his witnesses in did not take very kindly to Jesus. And that's putting it lightly. But the worst in their minds was still to come. Because the third place Jesus called them to go to was Samaria. Now, if you went through the Gospel of John with us over the past year, you will remember a few stories about Samaritans and how deep the hatred was between these two groups of people. This hatred was fueled by racial tension, political tension, and religious tension. And it had existed for generations. Right? Uh, I think that the story, or the, the hatred between these two people was exemplified very well in a story we read in John chapter 4. In this story, Jesus and his disciples are leaving Judea, actually to be chased out of town, and they're going back to their home base of Galilee when the story tells us that they had to travel through Samaria to get there. However, in those days, most Jews would take the long way around to Galilee. They would add more than a full day's journey of walking in the 100 plus degree sun just so that they could avoid the Samaritans, who they saw as racially inferior, godless sellouts to the Roman Empire. And while the radical display of love that Jesus shows to this Samaritan woman in John 4 and then to her whole community is beautiful, it seems that the lesson did not stick on the first try because Jesus continues to try to teach his friends. He teaches a parable about the good what? Samaritan, right? Where their hated enemy is actually the hero of the story. And the people don't take very kindly to that, right? Jesus is continuing to try to get them to think about loving the Samaritans. But it seems that for the most part, his disciples hear that and kind of say like, all right, Jesus, that's cool if you do that, but we're going to be over here loving our own people. But now in Acts chapter one, Jesus isn't saying, hey, I'll love them and you can watch. He's saying, listen, I'm commissioning you. I'm even commanding you to go and love them on my behalf. And finally, Jesus saves the most audacious command for last. And you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, if you take the hatred that the Jews had for the Samaritans and you double it, (laughs) you're probably starting to get the hatred that the Jews had for their neighboring countries and people, right? At least the Samaritans in their minds were half Jewish, but they hated the people around them. Most of these countries had been pretty bad to them, right? So a lot of times we don't just wake up one day and decide to hate people, right? They hated their neighboring countries because most of them at some point had tried to or had conquered them and taken them over. So when Jesus says, I want you to go to the ends of the earth, I want you to go outside of your country, outside of your country, to places that feel uncomfortable, maybe even dangerous to you, I can imagine them shaking their heads. Their original question, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel, is met with a response from Jesus that roughly equates to this. I believe that Jesus looks at them and says something to the effect of, 
I have come to restore a kingdom, but it is much bigger, much more diverse, and much more beautiful than you could ever even imagine. Jesus is showing that he is not going to establish his kingdom like other rulers do by waging wars that conquer through force. Instead, Jesus empowers average, ordinary, everyday people who establish his kingdom and conquer the darkness in the world by loving their enemies and sharing his good news in every space they enter. Jesus is sharing with the disciples that the spaces his kingdom will cover is the, it's the entire world. And this is what the book of Acts will cover for the next 28 chapters, right? In Acts chapters 2 through 7, we read about the spread of the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapters 8 through 12, we read about the spread of the church in Judea and Samaria. And then in Acts 13 through 28, the back half of the book, we read about the spread of the church to the entire ancient world. And over the coming months, as we're going to read through the story of Acts together in our Kainos communities, we will see how God stretched these Jewish, Jewish Jesus followers far outside their comfort zones to spaces they never could have imagined going. And by doing so, they see the beauty in God's creation of people as a Mago day throughout Israel, Africa, Asia, Europe, and the entire world. The spaces that they saw as being beneath them actually become their homes. And the people that they see as enemies become their family. But I don't want to give away too many spoilers because we're going to get into this over the coming months. So let's keep going with this passage. Verse 9 tells us, That after Jesus said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go. Now this moment where Jesus is taken up in the cloud has been referred to by Christians over the past two millennia as the ascension. And if I'm being honest, this story has always seem really crazy to me. <laughs> like Jesus is just standing there and then like magic trick, he's gone, right? And I believe that he lived and died and rose again, but I've always kind of had a problem with like, he goes up in a cloud. Like that's harder to believe than a dude died and rose again. I, I don't know, <laughs> just being honest, right? But the more I learn about the story, the more beautiful it becomes to me. A few years ago, I was actually preparing to teach this story to my middle school students when I realized I had no idea what the point was. <laughs> And so I started researching and studying, and I came across a piece written by a theologian named Shara Dramala. It's called, Why Does the Ascension of Jesus Matter? How Jesus Fulfilled a Biblical Theme When He Was Taken Up. Shara is a scholar who also writes for the Bible Project here in Portland, and she has a focus on the ancient languages of Hebrew and Greek and the biblical themes that often fly under the radar when we only read them in English. And what she illuminated about the Ascension was beautiful to me. She points out how, from the very first page of the Bible, God is showing us as readers about spaces. I don't just mean outer space, though the biblical writers do talk about the cosmos and how vast and beautiful they are. Shira points out how God's space and human space were made one on page one of the Bible in the Garden of Eden. She writes this, throughout the Bible, the biblical authors use the skies or the heavens to refer to the place where God lives, God's space. And they use land or earth to refer to the places where people live, humanity space. The key here is that both spaces were included in the natural created world. So why do we say that God is up there when he is also right here? When ancient Hebrew writers talk about geographical locations and spatial relationships in the physical world, they often use three physical descriptions to represent a higher transcendent reality. For example, death and emptiness are down in Sheol. And because God is transcendent or above all that we can see, his space is described metaphorically as being up 
or above or in the heavens, the sky. But the most important thing, she writes, is to see that God is not ultimately creating a supernatural place where he lives separated from humans. Because God's vision for heaven and earth, God's space and humanity's space, is that both would be fully integrated as one. God's space and our space are to overlap on earth as it is in heaven, which is why the world look was, which is what the world looks like in the Garden of Eden as a creation story begins. It's beautiful. But this theme of spaces in the Bible doesn't end in the garden. God continues to provide ways for his space and human space to overlap, despite humanity's rebellion against him in Genesis 3. Hidden and seemingly minor details in the Old Testament are these nuggets about God's space and our space becoming one. In Ezekiel 28, verse 14, the author tells us that the Garden of Eden was actually located on a mountain. In the book of Exodus, we studied last summer, Moses meets with Yahweh on Mount Sinai. And the Old Testament is filled with instructions on how the temple, the place where God's spirit would dwell, was also to be built on a mountain. According to 1 Kings chapter 8, the temple was to be constructed and modeled after the Garden of Eden. It was filled with imagery of gold and flowers, with every image pointing back to the Garden of Eden. I completely flew past me all my life reading about this, right? That the temple was actually supposed to reflect the garden, where God's space and our space became one. Now, I know that is a fire hose of information about seemingly small biblical details, but I hope you can see the beauty and how God is weaving this theme of spaces together because it only gets more beautiful as we finally get a complete picture of God's space and human space overlapping. And it's through the person of Jesus. In Jesus, we have a picture of what it looks like for God's space and our space to become one. And Jesus doesn't just exemplify us, exemplify this. He also teaches us how to live in this integrated way. Think for an instance, or think for, with me for a moment about uh, when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray during the Sermon on the Mount. He says, our father who art in, what, heaven, God's space, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth, our space, as it is in heaven, God's space. And then in the story of the ascension, we once again find a story of God's space and our space overlapping on a mountain. Here's what Sher Jamala writes about this moment. Having ascended up in the clouds as he did, Jesus now exists permanently in both God's space and humanity's space at once. Adam and Eve experience this kind of overlapping togetherness with God only in part, but Jesus experiences it fully because he has chosen to follow God's will from beginning to end. And his uniting of heaven and earth is now complete in himself. Now, next week, we're going to discuss Pentecost, the moment where after Jesus ascended, God's spirit descended upon humanity. And from this moment forward, Jesus's presence in the world was not only known through one person, a carpenter, a construction worker from Nazareth. Jesus' presence is now known through all those who receive his spirit and choose to follow him. I find it beautiful how Acts 1, 1 through 11 is demonstrating God's kingdom, his space, coming to earth through the person of Jesus. And as he invited his disciples to go out into the world, he also invites us to do the same. So I wanted to take a moment for us to think about what this looks like, for God to work in us, in our spaces, our heart, our mind, our soul. And to also work through us in the spaces, <coughs> pardon me, around us. So to do this, I'm going to invite up a couple of my friends, Gloria, Caleb, and Kevin. If you would come up with me for a moment, they are going to share a little bit uh, about this question. So we can throw those up on the screen. Two questions. How is God working in your space, in your heart, your mind, and your soul? And how is God working in spaces through you? And as they share 
I encourage you to hear what they have to say about how God's been working in them and through them. But as they share, I hope that it will stir your imagination about how for this past year or your whole life, how God has been working in you, but also working through you. Well, I'm excited to share some of the ways I've seen God at work in my life. Um, This past year has had a lot of change for me with leaving my country, community, and family to explore everything new in a new place. And I've been thinking a lot this week about ways that God's been working through me. A year ago, I moved here from a very large active church where I could easily point to a lot of activities and people that made me really feel like I was serving God effectively. And to be honest, like that made me feel pretty secure and pretty good about myself. And God brought me here and all that was lost. And yeah, I felt like a lot of loss and my energy was focused on finding my footing and adjusting to all the aspects of my new life. And for the past year that really left me struggling and wondering like, is God even using me at all? Um, And I think wrestling with that was where God has been leading me and showing me the ways he's at work in my heart That's and good. changing my motives, attitudes, and actions to reflect his love more closely. That's so good. I've had to let go of a lot of my own ideals and plans for what ministry and service should look like in my life and learn to engage with what God's already doing. Mm-hmm. Um, to release that constant need to be busy and active and useful and just to embrace a season of quietness to grow my relationship with God. And that's been really hard. I still often wonder like, what God even wants me to be doing here Um, But again and again, he reminds me to be faithful because when the time comes to move or to do something else, that's going to be his responsibility to lead me there and not my responsibility to worry over. And I found that as I learn to rest in that, it affects the way I relate with the people in my daily life. Um, I have a lot more grace and patience with the children I work with because I'm engaging with them out of a place of peace. That's good. I'm showing them that they are deeply loved and valued by their creator because I know that I am deeply loved right where I am. Amen. And I'm teaching them to respect each other and to manage their emotions because Jesus has given me wholeness mm-hmm. and I can pass that on as I myself am thriving. That's good. What Jesus is doing in my heart and what he's doing through me are so connected because I'll never be able to reflect his character until those things are made real in my own heart. I'm still learning about this every single day, all the time, and it's still hard, but I'm learning to trust. As Philippians 1.6 says, I'm certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Amen. Can we give her a round of applause? That's awesome. I think this will show one of the differences between us because she had a whole like, sermon right now. <laughs> Four sentences of notes. <laughs> um, I really feel like what God has been doing in me and what God has been doing through me are super connected. And I'm sure it's kind of the case for everybody. But um, I realized after I wrote these notes that what God has been doing in my life in the last year has actually been more of a continuation of from that I can look back at like one experience I had. Um, so I thought maybe I'd, I'd tell you guys a little bit about that. And that was... Right out of high school, I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do. And I did a couple, a little bit of traveling, um, some volunteer work, um, and I ended up getting signed up for an internship in New York City. And it was going to be like a nine-month thing. And one of the things that I was really praying for and asking God for in that time 
was a deeper connection with him. Um, I was raised in, raised in church, you know, taught all about God growing up and everything. Um, and I just really felt like the, like, like I knew it up here, but I didn't know it in my heart. Yeah. Um, and so what I was asking God for was that, that, that deeper personal relationship. Um, and God came through for me very powerfully on that. And I know there was one time specifically when I was, I was thinking about some specific ways that I really messed up, really blown it and kind of criticize. Yeah, definitely criticizing myself for that. And, and just, you know, just really sitting in that and being like, I don't like that about myself. Um, and right in that moment, God spoke to me so powerfully um, and just affirmed his love for me, um, despite what I had done that I didn't like. Um, and moving forward, I've had so much more peace, um, so much more security in my relationship with God, because I know that he loves me and he's for me and he, he cares for me. And it's not about what, I, what I'm doing. Um, and again, it's so interesting because I always knew that. I always did know that. Um, but now, when it's actually made a difference in my life is when I actually know it. And when it has actually um, real to me. So, in the past year then, um, I was just thinking about, this is October 8th. We got he- Gloria and I pulled in here October 15th, a wow. year ago, wow. so almost a year ago, um, and I'd never lived in Portland, um, and we're kind of going on this, you know, new journey, and like she mentioned some, there was a lot of, like, you just, you're in a new place, you gotta, you do the, you know, find the, find the job, and find an apartment, and, yeah. you know, all that fun stuff, um, so it a lot felt, it felt like a lot to me that, you know, not, not doing a whole lot, um, I was used to for the last couple of years, um, you know, being in, in volunteer positions or, or missions oriented positions where there's a lot of focus on, you know, spiritual growth, spiritual community yeah. and stuff like that. And not having that sometimes felt like, wow, this is, you know, is this just what real life is like? <laughs> <laughs> um, but what surprised me was that even in that, I didn't, I wasn't concerned about, or like it, it wasn't something that troubled me. I had, I had peace. I had security. I knew that God had led us here and I knew that God was working in my heart. Another thing I feel like I've been growing in, um, or has been how God has been working in me is just seeing the world more holistically, if that makes sense. Um, I feel like I, 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 I was trained. It was something like the, the school curriculum I had. You know, you're, you're trained to, to find the right answer. Find the right answer. Yeah. Um, and the right answer was always out there. And if you found it, you know, you'd get 100% on your test. And <laughs> I got really good at finding the right answer. And yeah. I get to the real world, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, there's, there's not always uh, just a right answer. Yeah. Um, and so just growing in that, that wholeness, that wisdom, um, being able to look at the world as, as whole rather than 
just the right answer. So that then relates to what God has been doing through me, and I feel that I have grown um, and become a better listener, um, becoming better at not just immediately looking to fix the situation. If someone says, hey, this is something that's troubling me, um, I'm able to like be like, okay, wow, that's, yeah, that's hard. Um, and not immediately going to, okay, well, what can we do to fix it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I work with people, so um, working in you know, customer service, and sometimes you, know, you, you have someone who's a little difficult. Um, <laughs> I feel like, you know, the, the security that, and peace that I have internally helps me be so much more patient with people and so much more um, able to like genuinely care for them and and try and look at their problem through their eyes and see that hey to them this is actually super important even if to me it's like oh you've got like three ants in your kitchen (laughs) 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 so yeah I I feel like that's some of what God's been doing yeah, uh, in my heart and, and working. So good. Can we give Caleb a round of applause? Sorry. This is recording on my iPhone. Oh, shoot. That's Fancy nice. technology. Okay. Uh, real quick, every time I hear either of them talk, I think I start to understand Paul's letter to Timothy a little bit more. And you guys are incredibly encouraging. So. <laughs> Uh, on the flip side, I'm starting to understand why my admin wants me to bring lesson plans into class, because I have no notes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but through me, I know, I'm pretty extemporaneous. But it may also explain why I go right up to the bell and my kids are like, we got to go. <laughs> um, in me, I, I shared something at the Kainos community recently. Um, I just... I, I've, I've long been a very anxious person. Um, Jake shared about going to counseling a couple weeks ago uh, when he was doing his message, and I, I started that over COVID, and it was really enlightening just exploring uh, who I am and, and what makes me tick and maybe what makes me not tick in, in the same way. Um, but one of the biggest worries I have, I hate flying, um, and we did a very long trip this summer where we were flying for, I don't know, a grand total of like 36 or 40 hours, something, something wild over a course of a couple weeks. Um, and I was really, really afraid for the first flight. And the entire time I get on the plane and God's just reminding me that he's giving just enough for today, just enough for today, just enough for today. And then as I started my new job, we, we moved, I went from a private school to a public school, which was awesome, but all kinds of intimidating at the same time. I keep getting reminded that of just enough for today, just enough for today. And it's awesome that you pointed out wanting to find correct answers, wanting to have correct answers all the time. I, I in a similar vein, want to go from, um, from starting a change to complete instantaneously. And so I've just been really reminded that um, in, God's working through me in that I am a work in progress. I am, I'm in process. My, my views are in process. My ability to relate to others is in process. My patience, my peace is in process. Um, and I think that's reflected here so well because I hear uh, all of you talk about how you're, you're growing, you're changing, you're shifting, but you're also unsure. You're not done. You are still in process. And so 
being able to be part of this community, you all are modeling that for me as well. And then just thinking about how God may be moving through me and through that as well. Um, I've just been faced with a lot of uh, people coming to me in some sort of need recently. Um, and being able to embrace the fact that I actually don't have the answers and I'm very much in process, but just being able to sit and be so much more powerful um, in those experiences than, than having answers. Um, and personally being able to have peace, which has not really been a fruit of the spirit that's shown up in my life <laughs> for, uh, let's see, how old am I? I just turned 29. <laughs> um, but finding that show up in those moments and being able to um, let the spirit uh, bring peace to someone else, even though that may not be uh, often where I'm at. Yeah. So, so good. Can we give you a round of applause? Awesome. So, so good. Well, hey, as we close, I want to uh, just take a moment to think about kind of a helpful framework that Acts chapter 1 creates for followers of Jesus. Um, remember that in Acts 1-8, Jesus calls his followers to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In addition to this being literal instructions for his first followers, Christians throughout church history have used this calling as a sort of roadmap to think about the places that Jesus is calling his followers today to be his witnesses to. Jerusalem, the first place that Jesus called his friends to be witnesses, was their home, their people, the place that they were currently residing. And I think this begs the question for us, who are the people in the spaces that you are immediately surrounded by? Your neighbors, your coworkers, or your classmates, the people in your circle of friends or family. And I encourage you to spend some time today, this week, this month, asking the question, how might God be calling you to love those in the immediate spaces that you are in? Second, Jesus calls his friends to follow and be witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And I think the challenge for us here is to consider who are the people in our life that might feel difficult to love that Jesus is calling us to be witnesses to? Is there a difficult coworker or classmate? Is there a neighbor in your apartment who plays their music loudly through the walls and keeps you up? Or a neighbor who walks their dog past your yard and doesn't clean up after the dog poops in your yard? Okay, these are real things that people would frustrate us, right? Is there someone in your life who you disagree with strongly about politics? Just this past week in Kainos Clubs, we got to talk about what does it look like for us as Jesus followers to engage with politics? And the answer is there's a lot of different perspectives, right? But we can probably all think of someone or some people in our life who we start to see as enemies because of politics or someone who just gets under your skin and feels like an enemy. It's a hard question to ask, but how might God be calling you to be a witness in the spaces that you are in towards people who are hard to love? Because this is one of the things that I think distinguishes followers of Jesus, right? That we don't just love those that are easy to love that are already on our team, but we also extend love to enemy. And finally, Jesus calls his followers to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, this verse has been a foundation for much of what we would call missionary work where people, uh, followers of Jesus, leave their home or their country or their culture to go somewhere new for the sake of being Jesus' witnesses to the whole world. And as a church community, one of Kainos' core values is that we want to be both local and global. 
being committed to serving both here in Portland and around the world, while also learning from our brothers and sisters here in our city, but also in the nations. And every month, Kanas shares a portion of our giving with an organization, a nonprofit called Create Hope Ghana, which is located in Ghana in West Africa and supports young women and men by providing them with access to education, healthcare, clean drinking water, food for them and their families, and a community that supports them in mind, body, and soul. And I am stoked, stoked beyond measure to share that in year three as a church community, we are hoping to take a trip to Ghana next summer to meet our friends that we have been financially supporting and to learn from them about how to seek Jesus in new and fresh ways here in our context. This is what some would call a mission trip, or we might call it a vision trip, right? We're not going in with capes on our back. We are not going in as saviors or heroes, but as students to learn from our friends in another context, to see how they are loving their neighbors. And as teammates on a shared mission, how can we take and see and experience God working in a different place and bring that home into our own context. So over the coming weeks, we're going to be sharing more details about this trip, uh, how we can fundraise together, what we'll be doing, who we'll get to meet. Uh, But for now, please just know that the invite is extended to you. We would love to visit Ghana with you next summer. This is also just for me personally, like my favorite place on planet Earth. Uh, I love it. Uh, it's a really, really incredibly beautiful culture and people. And maybe you've traveled a lot and this would be an amazing new experience. Maybe you've never left the country before at all, but this sounds exciting to you. If you've got any questions, hit me up. I would love to talk to you more about this. And we will be sending out some more info um, on it in the coming weeks. But uh, for now, I am going to close this time in prayer. And I'm going to invite Madison to come up and share some uh, birthday announcements with us. So if you would pray with me. God, we give you thanks for time to reflect on your space and how you are bringing your kingdom, your space, into ours. And God, we thank you that you are working in us. God, I think about what Gloria said. There are times, God, it feels like, are you even showing up? Are you even working in me? And God, those are often the times where we're being stretched and where we are growing the most of all. God, I think about these small ways, these big ways that you are working in us and through us. And I just give you thanks for how we've seen that over the past year as a community, showing up in each other's lives, grieving together, celebrating together, going through the highs, the lows, and everything in between. And God, we pray that as you have for these past two years, that God, in this next year, you would give us the courage to choose each other, to choose community, to choose to follow you, to love you, and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So God, we give you thanks. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Would you give a little round of applause for Madison? Also, these are just normal announcements. I don't know what birthday announcements are. Uh-huh, just cake. There is, yeah. Um, okay, so well, I guess it kind of is a little special. Um, just on this like year anniversary that we are marking, um, we think it's a good idea to kind of revisit some values that shape this community and just put those in front of you as well again. Um, so as a reminder, here are some values that Kainos operates from. These are all paradoxical ideas. Um, we believe we see a lot of paradox in the Bible and kind of God and his mystery operates really well by holding the tension of two seemingly see, things that seemingly contradict each other. Um, and these are ones that we wanted to commit to as we operate as a church. 
Um, so just to revisit these, Unique and United, in this third year, we continue to commit ourselves to seeing the unique image of God in each other and to celebrate the ways we are different, while also committing to the importance of being a community that is formed together as we are united under Jesus. Ancient and New, we continue to commit ourselves to studying and understanding ancient scriptures and the ancient church tradition, specifically as it's described in Acts, which is what we're about to do, um, while also seeking ways God is moving fresh and new in our modern time and city. Doubt and Delight, we continue to commit ourselves to being a space where we can bring our questions, confusion, and uncertainty, while also finding joy in the hope of God and his kingdom. Local and global, we continue to commit to being a church of people in the Portland-Vancouver metro with eyes open to the needs of our local community, while also considering how the global body of Christ is our family as well. In Gather and Go, we continue to commit to being a community that meets together intentionally and regularly, while also not creating an exclusive bubble, but going into the world with an invitation of good news. So... That's, that's our plan. Keep on rolling with those. Um, with these in mind, uh, we know that that will bring just new adaptations and ideas for Kainos as we continue to move forward as a church. Um, and so we are actually going to be sending out a survey in the next couple days, um, probably an email or in your group me, um, that we'd love for you to take to kind of catch some of your ideas, your needs um, for this church community It'll have things like this Ghana trip that J- Jake just mentioned. We kind of want to see, you know, if there's any initial interest in that and just gauge your guys' thoughts on a couple different ideas. So please be on the lookout for that, and it would be really helpful if you'd fill it out. Um, our next announcement is that October 10th is International Mental Health Awareness Day. I learned this from Selena Gomez on Instagram. <laughs> and also, though, October is just a good time to check in with your fellow Portlanders as the clouds roll in and ask each other, how are you doing? How's your mental health right now? Um, We want to be really intentional um, as a community to do that and also want you to know that we have resources available if um, you or a friend feels like you need them, specifically through our partner Speak Out PDX. Um, One of the resources that we have is a workbook that you could go through by yourself with one of us, with a friend. Um, to kind of just help yourself check in daily with, um, yeah, how that's going for you. Um, So let me know if you want any of them. They're super free to you. And we have three topics, one depression, one anxiety, one trauma. So if one of those things is something that you're dealing with, let me know. I'll get you a workbook. Um, Next one is we just wanted to give a yearly update on our financial state as a church um, as a new church, we have unseen, like, outside supporters that have committed to helping Kainos start and have committed to financially supporting us for the first five years of being a church. So that's really awesome. Um, but the cool thing is that this internal community is also contributing to that. And um, on average, our internal community contributes 32% of our monthly operating budget currently, while those outside supporters are making up the other 68%. So the goal is that by year five, we could fully support ourselves and not necessarily need the outside support. Um, And just wanted to give you guys an update that we're like almost right there on track. Um, Being two years in, we're 40% of the way to that five-year mark, 
and we're 32% of the way to being financially stable on our own. So that's really awesome. We wanted to just celebrate that and thank you for that. Um, and then if that's something that you are interested in joining in on, um, the way you do that is just kindofspdx.org slash give. Um, we do tithe donations just online, so it will walk you through how to do that. Um, and then our schedule, just wanted to put it in front of you. This is what October, so October looks like. We're in our Kainos communities. And then in November, we're starting to go back to that first Sunday of the month rhythm um, for our collective. So next collective is the first Sunday of the month in November, November 5th. And just to get this in front of you as well, um, in case you have friends that are interested or you yourself haven't yet gotten plugged in, these are our three kind of communities currently. We have our east, what we call the east side community, which is Gresham. Um, we have our Vancouver community, which is up in Hazeldale um, neighborhood. And we have what we call the downtown community, which is primarily inner east side in the Elliott neighborhood, um, but occasionally meets um, on the west side as well. <laughs>